Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started in our study this time, let's uh, spend a few moments in silent prayer so we can make sure that we are in fellowship and ready to study the word, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so very grateful for the fact that we have access to your throne of grace through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Father, we're thankful that we can bring these requests before you, that we can come before you as we begin our study of your word to ask that you would guide and direct us in understanding what your word says and how we can apply it in our own lives. Father, we pray that as we think through promises that we might come to a greater appreciation of who you are and what you provide for us and how you continuously intervene in the affairs of our lives. Father, we pray that we might be strengthened and encouraged because we know that no matter what our circumstances might be, no matter how difficult uh, the challenges, the heartaches might be, that you are always with us. Your word is always powerful, and this is the one way in which we can rise above, live above the circumstances of life. Father, we pray that you would guide and direct our thinking today. In Christ's name, amen. One of the great promises in in the Old Testament, one that I learned very early as a child and one that is uh, memorized by many Christians and one I often uh, recite at the beginning of Bible classes, is Isaiah 41.10. We're in a series on 1 Thessalonians 1.8, and we're dealing with the reality of faith. The Thessalonian believers were uh, noted for their faith in God. It informed their reputation that spread, the Apostle Paul says, throughout Macedonia and Achaia. And the thing should be tr- that same thing should be true of us in, as Christians in our modern context. As our culture slips more and more into a pagan secularization, there should be more and more of a contrast between Christians and non-Christians, Christians responding to the challenges and the crises of life by trusting in the Word and having an attitude of calm and an attitude of stability and peace and tranquility and and genuine happiness, even in the midst of crises. And there are so many potential disasters that hover, uh, hover around us. And we look at the Scriptures, and there are these tremendous promises that we have that are designed to stabilize our emotions, no matter what the external circumstances might be. And this is gives a testimony to those around us of the reality 
of our faith and the reality of what lies behind our faith, which is the sovereign, omnipotent creator God of the universe. And so again and again, we have promises throughout the Scripture that emphasize the fact that we're not to be afraid, we're not to be anxious. We are to cast our care upon upon the Lord because He cares for us. And so I want to look today at another promise. We spent a series, by the time the congregation sees this, I'll probably be in Ukraine. We've already covered about five lessons on claiming promises that was covered when I went to Israel. Since this is August and I'm recording this, I'm hoping we make the Israel trip. If if we don't make the Israel trip, then I don't know when these will be shown. But nevertheless, this is a, we're recording this ahead of time. So in Isaiah 41, we're growing out of the same context as Isaiah 40. In Isaiah 40 through 66, as we look at this section of Isaiah, God is giving Israel hope. Hope in the scripture is not a sense of optimism that is based on wishful thinking. Uh, so often in our world, this is how people handle, try to handle problems in life. And eventually that, that, that castle that they build in the air through the suppression of truth, uh, falls apart. And this leads to despair. This leads to suicidal thoughts. This leads to, uh, the overuse of drugs and alcohol and many other things in order to mask uh, that 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 sense of dread and anxiety that is uh, the result of being a fallen creature living in a fallen world without God, and uh, this is the um, in the Old Testament in Isaiah. There's a prediction in the first 39 chapters of how God's going to bring judgment uh, upon Israel and upon the nations. And this would leave you naturally with a sense of, of horror, a sense of dread as to what's going to happen, how are we going to survive, what about the promises that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Is God just going to leave us in this disaster? And in Isaiah 40 through 66, or 39 through 66 actually, um, what we see is, you know, 40 through 66, as I said earlier, what we see in this section is the hope of the Messiah, that God, God is not deserting his promises, God's not deserting his people, that no matter how horrible circumstances in life may appear, God is still going to fulfill his promises and the prophecies that he's given to Israel are going to come true. And so there's an application of that to us, even though these promises are given to Israel in, this, in the context of a specific historical disaster, and in, this, in the context of God's judgment upon the nation when he took them out of, uh, out of the, the land under the fifth cycle of discipline, what we see is that God always has a message of grace and hope in that context. And that these promises that God gives to Israel within that, the framework of those, of those particular circumstances still applies to us because we are his people as church-age believers. Uh, he indwells us. He loves us. He's provided even more for us than he did for Old Testament believers. And so these, these promises reflect general truths that are applicable as much to us 
as to the Old Testament saints, not in the direct way it was uh, in terms of the context, but these promises, like Isaiah 41.10, do have this direct application for us. Isaiah 41.10 reads, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yea, I will help you. Yes, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Now, as we look at this, there's some things that we need to think through as we go through any kind of of promise. We need to think about what is going on here. And the basic command here is do not be afraid. Do not give in to fear. Fear is an emotional sin that I believe is a, is is the foundational sin of the sin nature that is correlative to arrogance. Arrogance is the result of the creature being cut off from dependence upon the Creator. And we see this from the very beginning of the fall. After Adam and Eve had both eaten of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the first thing that they do is they hide from God. When we read the story in Genesis chapter 3, as God came, as he did every day, to spend time with Adam and Eve, uh, they run and hide, and God calls for them and says, Where are you? Knowing full well in his omniscience where they are and what they've done. Uh, that when we look at the context, we realize that as they ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they realized that they were naked, they were exposed, they were uh, without protection. All their security has evaporated. All of this disappeared. Reality shifted in a uh, seismic way at the instant that Adam ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So they sought to solve their problem by making clothes from fig leaves. So one of the first things that we see taking place is that man realizes at the core of his existential perception that he is vulnerable. And uh, there's a correlation to that because he's vulnerable and this produces anxiety, produces a fear related to his environment and related to his experience. And his first instinct is to cover that up, is to somehow solve this problem, camouflage it so that it's not obvious and especially it's not obvious to God. And so when God came to walk in the garden, he says, where are you? And they come out of hiding. And God says, basically, why are you hiding from me? And Adam's response is, uh, illuminates this. He said, I heard your voice in the garden. This is Adam talking to God. I heard your voice in the gar- garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. This is the core value, the core sin in the sin nature is that as part of our existential exposure from the sin nature that we realize our vulnerability and there is a desire to run from God so that in our, our the, that the darkness that is now inherent in our soul and the nature of our soul is not exposed by the light of God's righteousness and God's truth. So this produces the, the arrogance of our sin nature and when we think about arrogance, we think about it's the core orientation is self-absorption. And as we are absorbed with ourselves, we become afraid because at a core 
existential level, I keep using that word existential in terms of the basic core view of our own existence, there is this sense of dread, this sense of fear, this sense of anxiety, because in our self-absorption, even though we think we can be self, uh, self-reliant, we know we can't. And this is part of what happens with the dynamic of Romans 1.18 is we try to suppress that truth in unrighteousness and cover it up so that we're not reminded of our inability to solve our own problems. And this is what became evident in, in the garden as God came uh, to spend time with Adam and Eve. They are afraid. There is a sense of fear and 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 dread. It was interesting. Yesterday, I flew back from uh, Albuquerque. Charlie Clough and I flew out there to uh, spend a little time with uh, George Meisinger and with the, some of the professors at at Chafer Seminary, and just to talk about things that are going on, getting ready for the fall semester, and things of that nature. And I flew back yesterday afternoon, and I got on the airplane, and uh, the I, I always like an aisle seat because I need the leg room. And not long after I sat down, a young kid came in. He was about maybe early 20s, uh, Chinese. Turns out he's from Taiwan. I talked to him a little bit. And then a, a lady came in, uh, middle-aged, sat down in the middle seat between us. And we just commented. I asked her, or I think she asked me where I was going. I said, well, I'm going to Houston, and that's home. And then I asked her where she was from. And Really kind of an interesting answer. She said that she was from the People's Republic of Cambridge. That's Cambridge, Massachusetts. And, uh, which is, if you've ever lived in the Northeast and you're conservative, you know exactly what that means. That's, that's sort of a code word for, I'm a conservative. And her next line was, and I'm not part of the People's Republic, which was a clear statement. She's saying, I'm not a socialist. I'm not a liberal Democrat. And so we engage in a little conversation. And um, and then I uh, asked her, no, she she asked me why I was in Albuquerque, and I told her I was there for uh, a board meeting and business meetings. And then she said, well, what do you do? And I said, I was a pastor. I usually don't tell people that right away because a lot of people look at you like you just grew a third eye in the middle of your forehead. And uh, and so she, she immediately said, well, I'm a Christian, very enthusiastically. I'm a Christian. I said, really? That's wonderful. When did you become a Christian? Well, in my mid-20s. Well, we had a long conversation. It was a two-hour flight. I didn't get much else done, but I didn't really need to, so it was great that I had the time to, to, to visit with her. She ended up telling me she went to a conservative Episcopal church in, in uh, uh, Massachusetts, and interestingly enough, she had majored in psychology as an, as an undergrad, and before she became a believer... Her mother gave her a book, gave her Dave Hunt's book, The Seduction of Christianity, which really exposes the whole flaw and failure of psychology. So her mother must have been a believer. But we had a good conversation, and this kid on the other side of her was hanging on every single word that we were, that we were saying. And I got up about halfway through the flight and went back to the restroom. When I came back, when I sat down, she turned to me and she said, he's a Christian too. And he's, I said, really? And he, I knew he was from L.A. from my conversation earlier. So I asked him, I said, well, well, where do you go to church? He said, well, I go to a Chinese church, but I study the Bible at a website called gty.org. And I went, oh, that's grace to you. That's John MacArthur's website, isn't it? And he said, yes. So 
he entered into the conversation. We had an interesting conversation. But when I was talking with her about about psychology, I asked her, I said, what do you think is the basic problem that, that people come to you with? And she said, she said there, it, the biggest problems relate to anxiety and depression, and they're, they're related, but this is the major issue is anxiety. And then she said it's, they, they just have this, they have no hope, they don't believe in God, and there's just this existential dread in their soul. And then we talked about that a lot. But I, that just goes right back to uh, what Genesis 3.10 is talking about, is that people have this this dread that's built into their their imageness, being in the image and likeness of God. Now that that is corrupted and that fellowship with God uh, was broken at the fall, they're, 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 there's a realization that they're left with something that is missing. And they're in, in suppression of truth and unrighteousness. People are running to anything in the world to fill up that void that can only be filled up by God. And that void is primarily governed by this fear that Genesis 3.10 emphasizes, this existential fear. Well, when we look at that concept of fear and we look at the promises in Scripture, and I'll uh, go to some of them in a little bit, the Bible emphasizes this again and again. Throughout the Old Testament, there are constant statements by God, fear not, fear not, fear not, or don't be afraid, don't be afraid. Depends depends on the translation. Well, when we get into the New Testament, we understand the solution to that fear. And I'm not talking about the solution of salvation, which, of course, is the foundational solution. But once we trust in Christ as Savior and we're given new life, then we still have a problem because in our sin nature, we still have that existential dread. And when we're out of fellowship, we're living according to our sin nature, and that still becomes a problem, which is why the New Testament continues to reiterate the same command. Uh, for example, in Philippians chapter 4, uh, 5 and 6, uh, Paul says, be anxious for nothing. It's that same principle. We have to learn to deal with that core orientation of our sin nature toward fear, worry, anxiety, dread. All of these are a complex of emotional sins that work together. So even though the, the positional our foundational solution begins at the cross when we trust in Christ as Savior and we're given the new life that gives us the the new provisions of the spiritual life of the church age. Scripture says that we're blessed with every spiritual blessing. We have to then learn after we're saved how do we implement that? How do we how do we grow in terms of these these blessings that God has given us? How do we uh, optimize the potential that that's there in our new Christian life, and that only comes by studying the Word and learning what God's provided for us, and then applying those those promises to our to our lives. Well, in First John four eighteen, uh, the Apostle John makes the statement: "There is no fear in love." The way the English punctuates that, puts a semicolon there. That's an absolute statement. There's no fear in love. Often we think that the opposite of love is hate. But biblically, the opposite of love is fear. Fear is that core emotion that that it may produce hate, but the core problem is that existential dread, that existential fear 
that as we face the uncertainties of life without some anchor to our soul, then there's a, this insecurity, this fear, this this dread about how am I going to make life uh, life work? And it's through the process of facing various disasters in life, various negative circumstances, uncertainties that we become aware of of our inability to really make life work. And then we try to find something to cover that up because we don't want to face it. And a lot of people just get too busy in life, and they fill their life with distractions so they never have to deal with that. And there's all kinds of distractions uh, that we can use to cover up that that fear. But the core solution has to do with our spiritual growth and our sanctification. So Paul, I mean, so John states in 1 John 4.18 that there's no fear in love. I want you to take, hold your place in Isaiah 41 if you're there, and let's look at, at, at John, uh, 1 John 4.18. It's important to understand the context here a little bit. And I'm hoping that as we go through this study on promises that it really becomes clear to everybody that as you memorize promises, don't just take a verse and take it out of context, just memorize the verse, but take some time as you're memorizing it to reflect upon the context, to reflect upon the meaning of that verse. And even in a corollary verse like this, we we need to understand that 1 John 4.18 isn't, isn't a statement made in isolation. But John is saying there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. Now, we'll see that's not a good translation there uh, in the New King James. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. So twice you have the word perfect here in the in the New King James, and that is a very important word in the Greek. We've seen it many times before. It's the word teleos which isn't the idea of perfection in terms of flawlessness. It's the idea of perfection in the sense of maturity or completeness. It never has the idea of of flawlessness in the New Testament. It always has the, the idea of completion or maturity, something that is that is full. In this sense, it's a synonym often to play ra'o, something that is brought to fulfillment, something that is filled out completely. So what John says here is there's no fear in love but mature love or complete love, a complete full love, and we might even say that's related to a love that has a total integrity. Uh, Mature love casts out fear. So it's the idea that there's, there's a distinction here uh, between uh, a total contrast between fear and love. It's either one or the other. And the word that the, the, the Greek verb that is translated cast out is the word balo, which means to throw or to uh, 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 drive something out completely. The word ekbalo is a compound word from the uh, preposition ek, out of, combined with the verb balo, meaning to cast something out. That's the word that's used when Jesus commanded the demons to uh, come out, or it says he cast out demons. It's ek balo. Well, John uses a slightly different phrase. He uses a um, compound word, balo, plus exo, meaning to also to cast out. So instead of using ekbalo, he uses a slightly different term, 
here, but it means the same thing. It's a complete removal, that if you have a realization of God's complete love, then that kicks fear out the back door. It's one or the other, that when we are occupied with Christ, focus on God's love, then that kicks fear out the door. So John says complete or full love casts out fear because fear involves torment. Now, the word for torment is used only here, I believe, in the New Testament. It's it's a strange word, and it's the word colossus, and this has the idea more of punishment than uh, or discipline rather than the idea of, of chastisement. So it emphasizes a, a, a discipline and punishment in the sense that 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 fear it focuses on on a a, a a failure. It focuses on on punishment, and it's the result of God's judgment upon man. But he who fears, that is the one who gives in to fear and anxiety and worry, has not been made mature, has not been made complete, still immature, has not been made complete by love, that is, by God's, uh, by God's love. So this just helps us to understand a little bit more about, uh, about love. Now what I want you to do now is let's just look at the context of 1 John 4. I want to go back to the first, first verse in the, in the chapter. John addresses his his audience as those who are beloved, a key term meaning that they are believers. He says, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you've heard was coming in the world now already is. That's not talking about the individual Antichrist or a demon. It's just talking about the attitude of rebellion against the sufficiency of Christ. And then he says to them, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. This is talking about, about our potential. So he's, he's contrasting the believer's realities with that of those who are following the arrogance, which is at the core of the rebellion of Satan and, and consequently the Antichrist. In verse 5 he says, They are of the world, therefore they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. But we are of God. So you constantly have these contrasts in First John between the, uh, the either an unbeliever like it is here, but mostly it's believer between a believer who's operating on the world system and out of fellowship and a believer. He says we are of God. That is those who are walking. He constantly talks about those who are abiding in Christ. So he's talking about the believer who is operationally dependent upon the Holy Spirit and walking in fellowship. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. But this we know, by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Then in verse 7 he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. So he starts laying down the foundation here. Love is from God, for love, uh, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Now when Paul, t- I mean, excuse me, when John talks about 
those who are born of God, he's not just talking about someone who's simply saved, simply regenerate. He's talking about the believer who is living as if he is regenerate because he talks about the fact that as we go through here, he then talks about um, the fact that the one who is born of God abides in God. That's a key term for uh, for fellowship. And so this becomes evident as we skip down to verse 12. He says, no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us. So that's a fellowship term. God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. And that's the same word, uh, it's been brought to completion in us. By this we know that we abide in him. So he's talking about fellowship again and maturing in Christ. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. That's talking about walking by the spirit. Brings in the idea of fellowship, walking by the spirit, being filled by the spirit. Verse 14 says, We've seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him. This isn't talking about being saved. It's talking about fellowship and fully understanding the implications of our justification for our experiential sanctification. And then verse 16, We have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. And he who abides in love, that's fellowship. If you're walking in, in the truth, walking in the light, going back to 1 John 1, then you are abiding in him. And if you're abiding in him, you're abiding in love, and you're abiding in God, and God in you. This is part of experiential sanctification. Then in verse 17, love has been completed or matured among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. So the context now introduces the judgment seat of Christ. How can we be bold in the judgment seat of Christ if we have lived our life in fear? So the concept of fear that's being brought out here is also a fear of ultimate accountability as a believer, even at the judgment seat of Christ. So he's saying that we can be bold or have confidence at the day of judgment Because as he is, so are we in this world. That talks about the consequences of our fellowship. As a result, then, we have verse 18, our verse. There's no fear in love. We're not afraid existentially because we know that there's, and we realize in in our experiential walk with God that, that we don't have anything to fear at the judgment seat of Christ. We know there's not a loss of salvation, but we know there's not going to be a loss of reward either. We are walking uh, in, and abiding in Christ, so we're moving towards maturity, and then we will hear the words, Well done, thou good and faithful servant, at the judgment seat of Christ. And so it's only when we are living in light of that complete love from God that we can cast out fear. And then the verse that comes after verse 18 says, We love him because he first loved us. So God initiates our love is a response uh, to his love. So then John goes on shifting the application a little bit. So this is the issue that we are not focused on this future fear. Now let's go back to Isaiah 41.10. And remember the principle that when we are... Uh, when we are using the faith rest drill, faith emphasizes the fact that we are trusting in God. 
Uh, and so we are going to do whatever God says to do. So there's an active sense to the faith rest drill. If there's a command like fear not, we do something. We stop being afraid. If the command is to pray without ceasing, then what we're to do is to pray. There's an active component. The faith rest drill isn't pure passivity. A lot of people get confused about that. There's an active component and a passive component. The active component is we do what God says to do. Take the example of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When Nebuchadnezzar uh, built the huge statue and then he called out all the people to gather out and had his orchestra out there and he said when they, when they play their tune, everybody bows down and worships the idol. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are saying, no, we're supposed to trust God and not trust in idols. The commandment is not to worship idols or worship anything other than the true God of Israel. So we're going to trust God, which means we have to do something. In this case, we have to not do something, which is we're not going to bow down before the uh, before the idol. And then we're just going to rest in God in order to handle the problem and solve the difficulty. So there's an active sense. We do what God says to do, or we don't do what God says not to do. And then we rest and relax. We don't then cave into anxiety and fear that, well, is this really going to work out? And we see this with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they're identified as as those who weren't bowing down to the idol, they're arrested, they're brought before Nebuchadnezzar, and and he's angry at them because they're not bowing down. And they said, well, we have to obey our God, and he's going to protect us and preserve us and, and save us, and even if he doesn't, we're still going to obey him. They weren't going to base their uh, belief on a... On, on, on a promise that wasn't given. God had not given them any specific promise that if they didn't bow down, he would rescue them from the fiery furnace. They knew he was capable of doing it, but they didn't know necessarily that he would. They just knew they had to believe the, the, the command of Scripture, and they had to trust in that they were doing the right thing, and then God would take care of the results one way or the other. So we claim a promise, which means that we're basically staking our life, our fortune, our future on what this promise says in God's Word. Then, as we think about it, we need to think through the doctrinal rationales that are embedded in the promise. And this is where uh, I'm focusing today as we look at the different terms in a verse, think about what they mean, how are they used in other places in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, what are parallel passages that we can go to, and and then coming to understand just exactly what it is that God is promising within a particular uh, promise, and then coming to certain convictions or conclusions based on that promise which then give a rock solid stability to our uh, to our soul in the circumstances so in Isaiah 41:10 we're given the command fear not and it's in the, the second line is a synonymous parallel to the first line be not dismayed and when we look at the two verbs that are given that are here in the Hebrew, the first verb is yara, which is the main verb for fear. Uh, also can mean anxiety and uh, worry. It has that sense of dread. So it's fear not. Sometimes it has the idea of respect. 
Sometimes it has that idea of respect for authority, but that's that's a, another nuance to the word fear. Here it's the idea of being fearful, being afraid, being scared, um, anxiety. So he starts off, fear not, and it's a... It's an, uh, an imperfect that's used as a command, uh, which is just a form of the Greek, Greek grammar. It's, it still has that idea of a command, and uh, this is called a jussive in, in Hebrew grammar. And it has that idea of don't be afraid. The parallel to it is the word shata in the second line, which is translated dismay. And this is a word that also has the same force in, of, of an imperative in, in the Hebrew. It's a jussive, and it means don't look anxiously about, don't be overwhelmed by anxiety, don't worry. It's, it's a, a very close synonym to the idea of, of fear. And so as we look at this, the, the two lines of Hebrew poetry here parallel each other very closely, both stating uh, the idea, don't be afraid, and between these two words, it gives us a, a fullness of the idea here, what God is prohibiting. Don't be afraid, don't be fearful, don't worry, don't give in to anxiety. When things are go tough in our lives, many times we have difficulty sleeping. We go to bed, maybe we have a hard time going to sleep at night because suddenly we start thinking about all the things that could go, go wrong, all the stresses in our life, uh, or maybe we go to sleep and then we uh, wake up in the middle of the night and we start thinking about things that we have to do. We start thinking about maybe uh, uh, debts. We have financial worries. Uh, we think about uh, health problems. We think about job problems and security at work. Uh, we think about uh, circumstances around us in terms of, of both uh, related to domestic policy and government as well as foreign policy and government. Sadly, most Americans don't think about that, so that may be an irrelevant application for a lot of people because they're just too ignorant of foreign policy. We live in scary times. I don't know when this is heard what the circumstances are going to be, but right now when we look at foreign policy, we have an administration that is abysmally ignorant of the realities of the world. It's not unique to this Democrat uh, administration. It was true of the previous Republican administration. Ever since 9-11, we, we initially recognized that this was Islamic terrorism and that the root of the whole problem is the false religion of the Quran. But ever since about uh, 2004, those who have been fearful of any kind of religious dimension to, the, to this terrorism problem have gained the upper hand in American culture. Now we have an administration that doesn't even want to define it as terrorism. It is terrorism, and the one thing all of these, acti- these terrorist events going back to the early 80s and, and even before, uh, ha- the one thing they all have in common is Islam. And it is a religious war from their point. And no matter how secular we may wish things are, that's a false view of reality. The Bible says that there is a God. The Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures emphasize that there is a God. He controls history and that within this history there is an angelic rebellion against God and this is real. But in 
our rejection of religion, our rejection of the Bible, our rejection of the existence of God, we now have to define reality and explain reality in purely secular terms. And when you get a secularized Western philosophy that has excluded God, excluded absolute truth, excluded religion from uh, having any input into the explanations of why things are happening the way they are, the Western mindset can no longer comprehend the Islamic mindset, which is totally informed by their religious convictions. And until that is destroyed, this, this war with terrorism is never going to end, and there has to be a reality there. Right now we're looking at, at this terrible explosion of this uh, radicalized army that at this point is, I hear two different ways in which it's described, ISIS, I-S-I-S, which stands for uh, the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. And then I hear another term, ISIL. I'm not exactly sure what that stands for, is Islamic State of, uh, uh, of Iraq. But, but it's their, what they want to do is establish a radical caliphate. They are murdering Christians by the thousands. They are confiscating all of the property and all the value, uh, valuables of Christians. Uh, they're running them out. The Christians are fleeing from their lives in Iraq, communities that have been in existence for uh, 1,800, 1,900 years. Christian communities are being destroyed. Ancient churches are being destroyed, and all of this is being uh, uh, energized by, by the radicalized uh, movement of, of ISIS, which is really a resurrection of the uh, of uh, Al Qaeda in Iraq, which uh, the um, in 2009, uh, when we had a, uh, a, a pushback against them and they they sent more troops over, uh, we didn't destroy it totally until we destroy it in the root. It's always going to spring back, and it sprung back in a way that is much, much worse than anything that we, we could have imagined, and what they are doing is terrible. Now, if they control and reestablish a caliphate in Syria, in northeast Syria and northern and western Iraq, then this is going to become a base of operations for terrorist activity against the West. And uh, you have two arguments here. One argument is that we shouldn't be involved, and if we don't get involved in any way, shape, or form, then you're going to allow this another terrorist state to come into existence that has stated again and again in just the last couple of weeks that their goal is to plant a, the flag of Islam over the White House. And so then there's the other uh, argument that we need to be involved. Uh, I think that we're stuck between a rock and a hard place because of a lot of bad decisions that we've made before, so we're not left with very good options. I'm not here to tell you what the options are here. I'm here to tell you that this is very scary, and it should it it if without the word of God, we should be awake at night because they are sending and have been sending into America over the last 30 years. Uh, tens of thousands of sleepers, uh, terrorists who are waiting for the time when they're called upon to create some some activity. We probably have three or four hundred thousand sleepers at least in the U.S., and uh, we have a border crisis right now because this administration doesn't want to shut down the border, and a culture and a nation can't survive when they are overwhelmed by another culture. And when we're not assimilating 
these uh, new immigrants, and many of them, whether it's illegal or, or legal, is not the issue. The, the issue is that a culture, a nation, must preserve its borders and in order to preserve its culture. Otherwise, if it's overwhelmed by another culture, then the, what they're fleeing to will be destroyed and replaced because they will vote for the same thing that they've already had. And that's already taking place in a lot of border towns and in a lot of some cities in Texas. You see that the corruption that was uh, endemic to Mexico and many uh, Central American republics is playing out again in, in city politics. This is uh, this does not bode well for the future of America. Plus, we have problems uh, with international economics. You, I could go on and on. My point isn't to scare you to death. My point is to tell you that there are a lot of things that we ought to be concerned about, and if a worst case or even a bad case scenario develops, what we have to survive, what we will have to, to help us survive, is only the word of God in our soul. So we need to understand promises like this, and this isn't a whole lot different from the context. The original context of this chapter, because as we see in the in, in the first four verses, God is saying that He's raising up another ruler from the east. This would refer to Cyrus, who God is going to call to bring judgment upon the nations in verse two, and He is going to uh, wipe them out. But God promises Israel that He's not going to ultimately wipe out Israel. This is talking about Cyrus, who's the, who's the Persian king. And so the first two lines as we think about them say, fear not. Why? Because I am with you. Be not dismayed. Why? Because I am your God. So what, what is another key word that's repeated here? I, I, all the way through this, I, 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 it drives us to the character of God. So as we look at this promise, what it should drive us to is not just the realization we're not to be afraid, and God isn't just saying you sort of grab yourself by your emotional bootstraps and just stop being afraid. There's a reason for it. This is the rationale. We are not to be afraid because of who our God is. And Israel in context is not to be afraid because of the God that is giving this promise is the God of the covenant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God is not going to desert them. And so he, in this chapter, it goes back to emphasize the what he is doing in history. Now, as we look at God, we should always, at these times, reflect upon the essence of God, that God is sovereign. He rules over the affairs of men, that, that no matter what is going on, no matter what the stated goals of ISIS might be or what the stated goals of Hamas might be or what the stated goals of Hezbollah might be, there might be in conflict with the stated goals of God. Hamas wants to wipe Israel from the face of the earth. Their little slogan from the river, that's the river of Jordan, to the sea, that's the Mediterranean Sea, is that little slogan that they chant over and over and over again, free Palestine, free Palestine from the river to the sea, is basically a cry for genocide because what they want is complete and total rule over the land that they believe is theirs, from the river, from the Jordan to the Mediterranean, which leaves no room for anyone who is Jewish, not one. So when they have their little slogan, you just listen to that, and it's genocide, genocide, genocide. That's the objective of Hamas. That's their goal. Well, maybe that scares a few people, 
shouldn't scare anybody who believes in the Bible because God says that's never going to happen. That, that that land is Israel's forever and ever, and that there will always be a Jewish people, and ultimately there will be an attempt to, to wipe them out in the end times in the tribulation led by the Antichrist, and that's when the Jewish people turn to the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and he will return and he will rescue them from the uh, precipice of disaster and then establish the kingdom. And that's what the hope is based on throughout this section of Isaiah. And so God is talking about the fact that in the immediate near future, he will raise up an, another ruler who will uh, wipe out these and, and defeat these nations around him. Uh, verse 2, who uh, referring to himself, Let's go back to verse 1. He says, Keep silence before me, O coastlands. These refer to the nations around the Mediterranean. Keep silent. God is saying to, to them to hush your mouth. You know, quit talking out in rebellion against me. And then he says, Let the people renew their strength. Uh, let them come near, then let them speak. Let us come near together for judgment. The whole picture here is is to silence the Gentile nations. They are going to be accountable to God for judgment. And then he says, who raised up one from the east? Now, this almost sounds messianic. And when you read it at, your first, at first glance, you think, well, is this referring to something in the far distant future, Jesus returning? And it's not. It's referring to a, a, a different fulfillment the, that God is going to raise up another ruler and, and another empire after the Babylonians, and this is the Persian Empire. It says, who raised up one from the east? Later on, uh, Cyrus will be called God's anointed. It's not that he's a believer, but he is someone who's appointed by God in history to fulfill a specific purpose, and that is a purpose to uh, to send the Jews back to the land. Ultimately, but here he's just talking about the, the Gentiles and how the Gentile nations are going, should be fearful of this one God's going to raise up. And God's going to give him authority to defeat these nations around Israel. And at the end of verse two, it's talking about God will give them as the dust to his sword and indicating he is going to conquer those nations. And then, um, in verse 4, the focus is back on God who has performed and done this. It is God who controls history. Jesus Christ controls history. Who has performed and done it, calling the generations from the beginning, God, reminding us of the principle God controls history. So no matter how uh, horrible things might appear, no matter how disastrous they might appear, God is still in control. That doesn't mean things will necessarily go well circumstantially for us. You think of someone who lived in England, and we have a man in the congregation who was a child during World War II in Scotland, and he's given told me many stories about the hardships that they had uh, in England during World War II and how difficult it was with all of the rationings that a family of three or four hardly had enough food to, for one person to survive on. And it was extremely difficult, not to mention the fact that many of them had family members that were killed uh, during World War II. It was devastating for, for Britain. And it, um, if you're a Christian living in a circumstance like that, it may be horrible. You may go through times of economic uh, disaster 
uh, during a time of war. You may lose family members. You may lose your life. You think about the Jewish believers, Old Testament saints who lived in Jerusalem when the Babylonian army came in. They experienced all of the horrors that their pagan, unbelieving Jewish counterparts uh, experienced. But they had the resources of God to handle those circumstances. So God doesn't promise us a, a happy life free of, of disaster and free of hardship and free uh, of adversity. He promises us that we can surmount those negative circumstances. We don't cave into fear and anxiety and worry, and we can have joy and peace and stability even when everything else is collapsing around us. And the foundation for this is understanding God is in control of these circumstances. This is the uh, statement made in the last part of verse 4 where God identifies himself and says, I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last, I am he. This statement is going to be reiterated two or three times in Revelation, emphasizing in Revelation 1.17 and again in 22.13, it is the Lord Jesus Christ who says, I am the beginning, I am the first, I am the last indicating that he is the one who is eternal and in control uh, of the circumstances. Well, when we go on in this chapter to look at verse 5, we see that the coastlands, the Gentiles, see the rise of this power in the east. So we look at the pagan west, the pagans around uh, Europe and the United States look can look with a, with a horrible sense of fear at what is rising up again in, uh, in the er- same area in uh, Iraq. Uh, the coastlands of Gentiles see the rise of Cyrus, the rise of the Persian Empire, and they're afraid that they will be uh, conquered militarily. The ends of the earth were afraid. Uh, they drew near and came. Everyone helped his neighbor, and he said to his brother, Be of cur- good courage. This is a false courage. Their courage is based upon their paganism and their idolatry. So the verse 7 pictures the craftsman, the goldsmith, who are building these idols that they are trusting. And this is what the world does. This is what the pagan world does, is they construct false systems of hope that that are unreliable, that do not solve the problem of fear, but not the believer. So God says in verse 8, but you, Israel, see the contrast between the pagan trusting in his idols and Israel trusting in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But you, Israel, are my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the descendants of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest regions and said to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and have not cast you away. That's the foundation of the promise for Israel is the Abrahamic covenant. We have a different set of promises as church-age believers because we are in Christ. But the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the God who is the the God of the Christian, and so the principles apply. And so on the basis of the fact that God has chosen the church and God has not cast us away, he has, has provided us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, the same principle applies as in verse 10, which states that, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. That is true for us as it was for ancient Israel. 
He says, I will strengthen you. I will help you. God strengthens us. He doesn't remove the test. He strengthens us in the midst of the test, and he helps us, and he holds us up on the basis of his righteous right hand, which is a term describing his justice and his uh, his integrity. So when we look at this, we understand that fear is such a, a horrible, horrible sin that we dare not cave into it. Now, next time, I want to come back and talk a little bit about fear and then expand this into understanding some of the things that God says. For example, let me I, I told you I would review some of these promises. In this context, we have uh, five or six promises all related to fearing not. Isaiah 41.10, look down the page to Isaiah uh, 41.13. For I, the Lord your God, will hold your right hand, saying to you, Fear not, I will help you. Same principle, same foundation. Verse 14, Fear not, you worm Jacob. When God says you worm Jacob, he's emphasizing the fact that their, their, their humanity, their inability to solve their problem, and usually he's emphasizing their identity in, in not, uh, not depending upon him. Uh, so he's emphasizing them as as not focused on him. Uh, Jacob and uh, Jacob's name was Isra- given by God was Israel. Usually later on, when God focuses on Jacob, he's emphasizing Jacob, Jacob's basic character as the as the chiseler, as the manipulator, as the one who is trying to get his own way on his own terms. And he refers to him as Israel when he's focusing on him as being spiritual and dependent upon God. So he says, Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you, says the Lord, and your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. And then in verse, uh, the next chapter, or two chapters later in Isaiah 43, 1, God says, But now, says the Lord God who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. And then in Isaiah 43, 5, again, he says, Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your descendants from the east and gather you from the west. And then in Isaiah 44, 2, Thus says the Lord God who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. Again and again and again, this emphasis on fearing not. The same thing comes over into the New Testament. We're to be anxious for nothing. Because God is the one who cares for us, and God is the one who provides for us. And so next time we'll come back and develop this a little more as we think through what God is teaching us about fear and how to really cast fear out of our lives as we focus on the integrity and the love of God. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things this morning, to be reminded of your faithfulness, your love for us, and that it is your perfect, complete love It is that casts out fear. And when we are walking with you and focus upon you, then there is no room in our lives for fear or worry or anxiety, and that as we are tempted or tested to yield, to give in to anxiety or fear, we need to discipline our minds to focus upon these promises and to focus upon you as the one who is in control so that we can relax and face life without the stress of fear and anxiety. Help us to do that. Help us to think clearly how to apply these principles. In Christ's name, amen.